Maldisela, a short story by Linda Lappin. The hydrofoil whips on through the water. For more than five hours since they left Naples, they have seen nothing but a vast, flat blank of glistening green. Then a maroon cone appears on the horizon, partially obscured by a smudge of cloud and smoke. She recognizes the island of Stromboli, where faint wisps trail above the volcano. Through the spattered windows of the hydrofoil, she gazes in delight at the seven Aeolian islands emerging one by one from the haze. They satisfy a longing, a hunger, for what exactly she cannot say, beauty perhaps, that she has long forgotten. Those heaps of rocks seem alive, even more so than herself. Now with her husband on this vacation they have dreamed of all year, she feels they will soon be transiting into another dimension. Momentarily disentangled from the mundane routine, they will surely find here the energies and enthusiasms of their younger selves. The first stop is the tiny port of Pertusa, little more than a cleft in the rock on Stromboli, where a tall gaunt scarecrow of a man with a long red beard comes rowing out to the hydrofoil. There is no other way for passengers to go ashore here, as the harbour is too small for any craft larger than a rowboat. Standing erect, pulling on the oars, the fisherman manoeuvres a tiny boat up alongside the hydrofoil. She stares at the baked bronze skin of his bare torso, at the muscles of his arms contracting with the strain, then suddenly embarrassed, she looks away. The steward throws a plank with a rope railing across the gap, and one lone passenger totters over into the rocking boat. A crewman pitches a bulging sack to the fisherman. Careful now, the fisherman grumbles, or we'll lose the mail again. And you complain about our postal service, her husband says. Think how long it takes a letter to reach here. She watches the fisherman row his passenger into the shore and then glances at the handful of cube houses in the port. She does not know what to make of such solitude, such finite geographical placement, where all contact with the outside world must be mediated by the brute strength of this archaic ferryman. Just then, she hears the volcano rumble once, faintly. I don't think I'd like to live at the foot of an active volcano, she says to her husband. He reassures her that where they are going, the volcano is extinct. An hour later, they reach their destination, Alicudi, the last island in the chain, a blackened cone with a narrow lip of purplish boulders along the shoreline. The slopes are terraced all the way up, with massive stone walls where caper bushes cascade in clusters. Not a tree in sight, only the jagged spears of giant agaves and aloes and foaming canopies of magenta bougainvillea. No one else gets off at this stop. They are the very last passengers on board. As soon as they have been deposited on the shore, the hydrofoil turns back. This is the farthest it can go, except perhaps on to Africa. Four ramshackle buildings are huddled in the port, including a tobacco shop and a post office, both closed. 
At the end of the cracked cement slab that serves as a pier is an automated lighthouse. At the sight of such desolation, she feels disappointed and wonders if they had been wise to come so far. After all, they could have stopped on one of the other islands not quite so remote and stayed in a pretty pink hotel with a balcony overlooking the port. Yet it was the remoteness and primitiveness of this island that lured them here. Perhaps Alicudi will yield its secrets if only they can draw close to the spirit of the place. It looks like the last outpost, she says. The last outpost before what? She doesn't know. You're such a pessimist, her husband says. A faded sign indicates the way to the hotel, a narrow road along a beachless shoreline strewn with gleaming black boulders. The water is deep cobalt and dense as ink. It looks as though it might stain your skin if you immersed yourself in it. Where the road stops, stairs begin, carved of enormous blocks of volcanic rock over five feet high, spiraling around the cone all the way to the top. Set in a niche at the base of the cliff is the only hotel on the island. The hotel owner, a burly Sicilian who smells of sweat, grappa, and cheap aftershave, comes out to greet them and shows them to their bungalow, a stark white cube with its own private patio, surrounded by a sort of zen garden of raked gravel, sharp rocks, and shriveled aloes. Inside it is stuffy and smells of mildew. There is no double bed, just two narrow cots shoved together and tied with a string. She wonders how they're going to manage with that, given their various aches and pains. Her husband collapses on the lumpy mattress, exhausted after the eight-hour trip. She lies awake, staring at the stains mapped on the ceiling. They are stranded here, she thinks. They might as well be clinging to a raft in the middle of the sea. After a rest, she steps out onto the patio, where she has left her tennis shoes airing out in the sun. Reaching down for them, she has a sudden start, for a very long, thick black snake is coiled up on the hot gravel. She screams and drops the shoes. The snake, disturbed, slithers under a pile of rocks nearby. The owner is out in his rock garden, snipping off caper buds and collecting them in a basket. He puts down the clippers and looks in her direction. A snake, she gasps, right out here by the door. The owner laughs. He's harmless, keeps away the flies and other things. No poisonous snakes on this island. Can't you do something to get rid of it? No doubt he's more terrified of you than you of him. She goes back inside to tell her husband about the snake. He is awake now, sitting bleary-eyed on the edge of the bed, too groggy to pay attention. I need a shower, is his only reply, and he heads for the bathroom. A few moments later, he bellows, Honey, quick, bring a shoe. She dashes into the bathroom, wielding one of his sneakers, and finds him naked, dripping, and covered in lather, cowering against the side of the shower stall. He points to the opposite wall, where a small black form clings to the tiles. What's that? I can't see without my glasses. A scorpion, a big one, she exclaims, and swats it with a shoe. 
but she misses and it slips down and scuttles toward the drain hole in the floor. Kill the damn thing, he shouts. Those are poisonous. She strikes again and squashes it flat. My hero, he says, and they both laugh. That night at dinner they sit in the hotel restaurant, the only guests, watching two giant jackos climb the wall above their table, misshapen creatures the color of sickly flesh with red, bulging eyes. Husband and wife, comments the owner. The female is the bigger one. They keep the bugs away. As if on cue, a giant mosquito drones near the wall light. The larger jacko shoots out a quick yellowish tongue and gobbles down its dinner. There you see, says the owner approvingly. I hope they don't fall down in my food, she says. The owner laughs and tells her they are harmless. Well, what about the scorpions in the drain, her husband asks. Are they harmless too? The owner frowns at the mention of scorpions. One crawled out while I was taking a shower, her husband says. Shouldn't be any of those, the owner says. I'll look into it later. That night, before they go to bed, she examines the crack under the door of their bungalow. Do you suppose a snake could slip under that crack, she asks. Very likely, her husband says. She takes a newspaper, crumples it up into wads, and stuffs them along the crack under the door. He shakes his head. Do you really think that will be of any use? Then he sighs and says, I hadn't finished reading that, you know. They close the shutters but leave the window open to let in the cool breeze. Then, as they lie in bed, reaching out to embrace across the widening gap between their cots, a smell begins to fill the room, a sweetish familiar stench which soon grows pungent and gagging. My God, she coughs, that's insecticide. She leaps out of bed and bangs open the shutter. Out in the rock garden, she sees the owner with a canister of insecticide strapped to his back, spraying the whole place with a thick blue stinking cloud. She slams all the windows shut and goes back to bed. Next morning, they wash the smell off with an early morning swim. The current is swift, and after she has swum out a couple of feet from shore, a dark abyss opens right below her, plunging down twenty feet or more. But she tries to be brave and puts on her mask. She can see the roots of the island sloping deep down towards the seafloor, where bloated shapes and luminous fish drift in the silence, ignoring her pale, pudgy body afloat on the surface. Never has she seen water so clean or been so close to such teeming alien life. But she can't stay in the water for long. The depths are too unsettling. As they lie in the sun, a small fishing boat putters up outside the hotel, and the hotel owner's son comes out and helps the fisherman pull his boat up onto a gravel path. She watches them struggling to lift a huge black streamlined form out of the boat, a swordfish over six feet long with a sword like a sawtooth yardstick. 
They lay the fish out on the gravel, straddle it, and begin hacking at it with long, gleaming knives. First they chop off the head with its furious, glazed eyes, then slice away the fins, and at last begin to carve the flesh into large pink chunks. Streaks of blood seep across the gravel and drain towards the sea, mingling with the tide. The owner stands on his hotel porch, hands on hips, nodding with satisfaction as he watches the operation. Wouldn't be surprised if that's our lunch, her husband says. And as usual, he's right. Later, looking out to sea from their patio, they notice a small white ship tossing on the waves, threading its way toward the island. This is the ferry that calls in once a week, bringing cargo and provisions from the mainland. They decide to go down to the pier to meet it. A small crowd has gathered on the pier, milling around in festive expectation. She wonders where all the people have come from, as the place generally seems so deserted. There are even a couple of donkeys standing placidly, waiting, and she regrets that she has not brought a camera to take a picture of them. The tobacco shop and the post office are both open now, and they buy stamps and cigarettes while the ship anchors. There is great excitement during the unloading of the cargo, which consists of all the varied necessities of life in such a remote place. Cases of mineral water, condensed milk and beer, crates of cabbages and potatoes, pieces of plumbing and outboard motors. Brown, lanky young men with long, greasy hair eagerly hoist the boxes onto their bare shoulders while heavier burdens are strapped to the pack animals. The last thing to be carried off the ship is a small sofa, a love seat with green chintz upholstery all wrapped in plastic. When the unloading is done, a few passengers go aboard. The crowd clears away as the ship weighs anchor, toots forlornly, and chugs out to sea. The week's main event has lasted little over half an hour. The post office and tobacco shop roll their shutters back down. The pier is soon deserted, except for the two of them, and the green chintz love seat as yet unclaimed. They sit down on the sofa and watch the ferry heading for the horizon. Just then, an old man with a donkey comes loping down the pier. Seeing them both on the sofa, he begins to curse and gesticulate, and they quickly jump up. I gotta take this up there, says the old man, waving his hand vaguely towards the top of the volcano. My son's gone to Lippery. You help me. She worries about her husband's back as he strains and grunts, helping the old man lift the love seat up onto the reluctant donkey. The beast shakes its head and splutters, stamps the ground, and bucks its rear end. Hey! cries the old man, pounding his fist into the donkey's bony flanks. It sputters again in protest, then bows its head low, sulking as they strap down the sofa. Poor thing, she says, reaching out to caress its ears, but the beast jerks its head away. Leave it alone, her husband snaps. The last thing it needs is your consolation. So someone lives up there, she asks the old man, hoping he hasn't noticed her husband's rudeness. Oh, yes, he says, 
a whole community of Germans, retired people, stay all year, never come down. It's not hard to see why, she says. You have to take everything up, food, water, everything. Now he pats the donkey's head. Four hours to go up, three to come down. Now I better get going. The lady wants her sofa. She's got guests coming. Guests, she asks, glancing up. But the glare is too overpowering for her to see very far. The slope's too steep to make out the tip of the cone. The man thanks them and leads the donkey back down the pier towards the stairs. They hear it braying pitifully on its way up. I certainly didn't think it was going to be like this, she says. There is no place to go but up. She has never been a great climber, and though intrigued by the idea of visiting the village at the top, she knows she doesn't have the strength for such an expedition. But it annoys her that she will soon be too old for certain experiences and that her husband, a few years younger than herself, might begin to notice this. I don't suppose you would care to see what it's like up there, he asks now, as if reading her thoughts. Not in this heat, she says. Perhaps tomorrow in the evening, when it's cooler. The hotel man has arranged a tour of the island by boat for them with a fisherman. Another couple comes along, lean and thin and much younger, just visiting Ali Kudi for the day. The fisherman is an obese but muscular fellow in a dirty knit shirt that clings to his enormous belly. As soon as they round the promontory and are out of sight of the tiny port, they find themselves in another world. Here are no signs of human habitation, no pastel cube houses or gargantuan staircases. This side of the island is like a scorched chunk of moon fallen to earth. Black pits and craters, stretches of black sand. It seems to her hostile, alien, and yet sublime. Grotto's gape, pinnacles thrust up like the totems of unknown gods. She sees now that this place has its own guardians, its own laws that have nothing to do with her. They anchor offshore for a little swim, which is the high point of the tour. She waits till the young couple jump into the water before stripping down to her swimsuit, ashamed to show her plump thighs and varicose veins to these athletic, youthful strangers. Her husband follows them eagerly into the water while she hesitates and then, with some misgivings, dives from the boat into the shining dark sea. The couple swim off on their own with their snorkels and masks, surfacing now and then to shout breathlessly about the fish they have glimpsed underwater. She and her husband paddle about more cautiously near the boat. The wind rises unexpectedly and the sea begins to swell slightly and the fisherman calls them all back. She swims to the base of the boat and looks up. Then she sees there is no ladder and the sides are far too high for her to reach. The young people somehow manage to scramble back in, sliding and laughing and shouting, but she notes with some consternation that her husband is having difficulties. He has grabbed onto the side and is heaving himself up with great effort. She can see the veins tensed in his neck. Now when her turn comes, she finds she does not have enough strength in her arms even to hold on to the edge. 
much less hoist herself up. Come on, honey, her husband says anxiously, peering at her over the side of the boat. You can do it. He is still panting with exhaustion. She is dismayed to discover after three futile attempts that she cannot manage it. The fisherman now intervenes and leans low over the boat. As he strains to pull herself up, he reaches down and catches her under the arms. Groaning and puffing, he tugs her upwards, but the water holds the lower part of her body firmly. She is a leaden weight in a viscous mass. For a moment, it seems, he is about to topple over with her into the water. Then he lets go and she sinks back into the sea. The water is rougher now. The situation will soon become alarming. Once again, she frantically thrusts herself up to grab the edge of the boat, and the fisherman bends low and seizes her armpits. With one mighty pull, he lifts her from the water and into the boat. She collapses on the deck, retching from the exertion, a deafening roar in her ears. Honey? Her husband asks, squatting down beside her. I am perfectly all right, she says, closing her eyes and turning her head aside. That night at dinner they eat swordfish and capers again. Do you suppose they ever eat anything else here? she asks. He reminds her that swordfish is a luxury and signals to the hotel owner to bring another bottle of wine. You'll never eat any fish fresher than that, says the owner proudly. My son caught that swordfish last night. Two of them, actually. You catch them in pairs. He uncorks a well-chilled bottle of Alcamo and pours some out for her husband to taste. She asks the owner to explain. Well, they are monogamous. Swordfish made for life. Now he pours her a glass. This one is the male. She looks down at her plate and frowns. Once they have taken one of a pair, its mate won't swim off to safety but stays around the boat trying to rescue the one that's been caught. Sometimes they throw themselves against the boat as if attempting to knock it over, or maybe they do it out of rage or desperation. Anyway, he eventually wears himself out and they get him too. She can't bring herself to finish her dinner, although it is delicious. Suppose I couldn't have got back into the boat, she asks, as her husband is lighting his after-dinner cigarette. There would have been some way to rescue you, even if it meant tugging you behind us in a rubber raft all the way to port. He smiles slightly at this ludicrous vision. But what if the fisherman had fallen in too? With all that bulk, he might never have got back into the boat either. Why worry about things that haven't happened? After dinner, there is nothing to do except stroll down to the pier where the automated lighthouse flashes green through the blackness. There are no other lights in the port, and only a faint twinkling in the distance suggests the remote presence of other islands in the night. She can't spot a single constellation she knows. All the familiar stars have slid askew to far corners of this southern sky. A few people sit on the edge of the pier fishing. Their phosphorescent floaters glow in the dark. Suddenly, one of the fishermen, a young boy, cries out, and his floater hops wildly. The line jerks, his rod nearly snaps in two. The boy leaps to his feet, struggling to reel in his catch. A long black wriggling thing slips out of the sea, 
arches high into the air and lands with a slap on the pier. Everyone crowds around it. Someone holds the dim flicker of a cigarette lighter close to the writhing form. She leans down with the others to examine it, but her husband quickly tugs her back. It's a more eel, shouts someone, as the creature is illuminated by the intense amber beam of a flashlight. Its eyes catch the light with an eerie yellow gleam as its body squirms furiously. She stares fascinated at the dog-like head tossing back and forth, the multiple rows of sharp teeth gnashing at the night air. A man comes rushing up behind them, holding a large rock over his head. For a moment she's afraid he might strike them, but instead he smashes the rock down on the moray's head. Blood spatters out across the pier. The body, still attached to the crushed head, keeps coiling and uncoiling, trying to break free. Later, back in their stuffy bungalow, she says, This place is beginning to get to me. It's too crude and and claustrophobic. Filicudi, the nearest island, is only an hour away by Hydrofoil. Her husband suggests that they take a day trip just to break the monotony. Next morning at breakfast, they tell the hotel owner about their plan to visit Filicudi and ask him about the island. It's a strange place, Filicudi, he begins. In what way? she asks. Oh, they say the island has been under a curse, if you believe that sort of thing. He smiles darkly. She begs him to tell her more. There used to be seals here in these islands, long ago, but the fishermen killed nearly all of them because the seals destroyed their nets. In the end, only one was left alive, a female, who lived all alone in the grotto on Filicudi. People felt sorry for her because she was alone, and so they adopted her. Then the mayor of Filicudi took a gun and shot her. Nobody knows why, not even himself. Then that night, a terrible storm blew up, quite unexpected. A man drowned, a cow with two heads was born, and a little boy was struck dumb and never spoke again. They say that ever since that night, Filicudi has never been the same. Did anything happen to the man who shot the seal? she asks. Nothing at first. But much later he got very sick and they had to bring a special doctor to the island just for him. It was catching, you see. What is the point of that story, do you suppose? She asks her husband as they are on the hydrofoil bumping across a rough sea on their way to Filicudi. These Sicilians have an odd way of playing jokes. He's probably noticed that you're the anxious type. There is a pause, and then he says, You're not worried about that silly curse. Of course not, she says. Actually, she is glad to be escaping. Filicudi is one step closer to the world they have come from. There are quite a few people on this first run, which continues on to Lipari. Among the passengers, she notices a strange man, completely covered from head to toe in various beige and brown garments. Hat, gloves, scarves, sunglasses, so that hardly an inch of his skin is exposed. He is sitting in their row reading a newspaper, but she has a funny feeling that he is really peering at them sideways from behind his dark glasses. She points him out to her husband. 
That man has been staring at us. Why do you suppose he is dressed up like that? She asks. Maybe he's allergic to the sun, or he might be badly sunburned. This is a plausible explanation, and for the moment satisfies her. Philly Cody is much larger than Ali Cody, and much greener with eucalyptus and palm trees. In the port there are cars and shops, and even a cafe and grocery store. Hardly anyone gets off except a priest with fishing gear, two nuns, and the odd, bundled-up man who is the first to disembark. He strides quickly off down the pier, then stops as if he has forgotten something, and glances back at them over his shoulder. There! I told you he'd been looking at us! Now the man turns around and stares at them squarely. At last she has a frontal view. The broad brim of his straw hat is pulled low over his forehead, Beneath the brim are huge black sunglasses and a thin silk scarf wound several times around his neck to hide his chin and mouth. What cannot be concealed is the triangular hole in the middle of his face where his nose ought to be, but isn't. Then the sea breeze stirs the gauzy folds revealing mottled whitish skin beneath and frayed lips. My God, she gasps. A leper. She has never seen a leper before, or even any pictures of them. This instantaneous knowledge rallies from some mysterious depth. Her whole body shrinks back in fear. She grabs her husband's hand. The leper, perhaps noticing their dismay, quickly adjusts his scarf to hide as much of his face as possible and comes straight at them now with determined footsteps. Good afternoon he says politely. Got a cigarette? He asks her husband, his voice slightly muffled by the scarf. Hesitantly, her husband takes out a pack, taps out a cigarette, and holds the pack out to the leper. The man deftly slips the cigarette out with gloved hand. There is a medicinal smell about him of bleach and iodine. He moves the scarf away from his mouth and puts the cigarette between his discolored lips. Go ahead and keep the pack, her husband says, handing it to him. I have more. He lights the stranger's cigarette. She is terrified that the leper might touch her husband. Please take the lighter too, she says, giving her husband a little nudge on the arm. Thanks, says the man, pocketing the cigarettes and lighter, blowing out the smoke from one side of his mouth. I noticed you on the boat. I just wanted to tell you that my son rents rooms here on Filicudi if you're looking for a room. She declines politely and explains that they are staying on Alicudi. Alicudi! On that heap of rocks! Not even a decent beach! Well, you might want to come and have a look in case you ever decide to come back. My daughter-in-law does the cooking. She also does lunches for tourists. You could come to lunch. Very reasonable price. She tells him, more firmly that they have brought a picnic, although this is not true. Well, maybe you'd like to rent a boat for the afternoon. We also have cold drinks and ice chests available if you were planning a picnic. She declines again. She is beginning to get nervous and is irritated that her husband has not yet intervened as usual. The leper puts his gloved hand on her bare sunburnt arm. Signora, I really wish you'd Come and have a look at our place. It's all brand new. Everything was renovated last winter. 
She stares at the grimy suede glove that is now lightly encircling her wrist. An unfamiliar power flares up within her. She jerks her arm away. Honey, her husband says. Calm down. The leper steps back, mumbles something, and stomps off. Then he turns and shouts, You tourists can go to hell. I have to wash my hands, she says. Honey, it's all right, her husband says. I'm sure they wouldn't let him go around like that, bothering tourists if there were any real danger of contagion. They take the hydrofoil back to Alicudi and go bouncing across the swollen waves. At times, it seems, they pass under the sea. White-capped waves crash over the sides. Even the crew members are uneasy and lose their balance as the hydrofoil rocks wildly from side to side. Three glasses slide from the ship's bar and shatter. She can hardly wait to get back to their hotel safe on dry ground. As they approach Alicudi at sunset, she sees at last, through the salt-encrusted windows, the island in its entirety. A charred pyramid rising from a boiling sea with a few houses clustered in the dead crater at the top. Suddenly she knows that its secret is survival. And she has been touched by the spirit of the place. You have been listening to Maldisola, a short story by Linda Lappin, narrated by the author. Thank you so much for listening. You can see more of Linda's work on her website. I'll provide a link to the website in the show notes. If you have a story you'd like us to read or a topic you'd like us to cover, then contact us on Facebook or Twitter and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.